Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. We are going to talk about a book today by Catherine Stewart called The Power Worshippers. It is actually a book that has been made into a documentary that is going to be coming out soon called God and Country about Christian nationalism. And there's a number of people who claim to even be evangelical like David French and Russell Moore and Jamar Tisby and Kristen Dumez who are actually part of that documentary. And we played the trailer a few weeks ago on this podcast and really concluded that they were carrying the water of people who just hate Christians, <laughs> who hate Christianity, don't want it to have any influence in the country, at least um, any political influence or social influence. And um, and so the, the question has been, why would people who claim to be Christians be part of that? And I, I think the answer is probably fairly simple. And maybe it's our cynical side that wants to say it. But after years of observing this, uh, you know, the people who are part of that, who claim to be Christians, are um, doing it because they want to ingratiate themselves to the world. They want people in the world to like them, to think well of them, and they want to throw under the bus the people that they supposedly represent. Uh, and it, it's a sad thing, and it's a story that we've seen over and over and over, and um, I don't want to lament that right now, but uh, just jogging everyone's memory for those who listen to the podcast, we've already talked about this some, but I wanted to get into the book. I, I don't know if I knew at the time when I recorded that podcast reacting to the God and Country trailer that it was based off of this book by uh, Stuart. And when I read the book, and I've actually, I, I've listened on to the book on Audible twice, and then I downloaded the Kindle and uh, kind of went through that. And so I, I, I'm pretty familiar with what she's saying. Um, it just strikes me as an anti-Christian diatribe. That's really what the book is. And of course, you know, she may object to that. And in fact, the people who are promoting the documentary may even object to that and say, well, they're not really against Christianity, just a certain type of Christianity, a Christianity that wants to have influence and actually believes the things the Bible says. And that's really what they're against. So it's, I think for this audience, uh, most of you understand that's just true Christianity. The Christianity that actually believes what the Bible says and wants to uh, and see, sees biblical law, sees um, sees an influence of Christianity on society at large is a good thing. That's just what Christians have always been doing. But that's viewed now as the exception. That's the freak. That's the uh, ignorant hillbilly, racist, redneck, uh, you know, whatever negative characteristic they throw and slap onto Christians. Um, it, it's all of that. They try to tuck it away into some remote corner of the, the rural South or something. And 
and, and then say we need to just keep condemning it because it's such a threat. But what they're really doing is they are condemning what Christians have always stood for and believed. And that's uh, part of the concern that I have and the reason I wanted to do this podcast. So I just want to review this book. And really, this serves as coming attractions. This gives you an insight into the documentary because it's what the documentary uh, is based on. So this is a a very um, this is a book that has sold a lot of copies. It's popular and uh, it is something that we should probably know about. Now, before we get into all that, I just want to let you know about the sponsor for this particular podcast, ScreenItFirst.com. ScreenItFirst.com, great website. You can go there if you're a parent and you can report on issues in books that your children are reading. So if it's got foul language or if it's got some explicit content or it exemplifies lying and stealing as positive goods, you can go to this website and you can uh, find the book by ISBN number or title or author, and then you can go ahead and screenshot on your phone the picture of that page. Post the page to the website with uh, the the issue categorized, and other parents can then uh, see your work so they don't have to read these entire books that their kids are reading. And so often, I've said this before, people think, parents think, if my kids are reading books, that's good. If they're watching television, I got to be careful. But the reading books thing, we just want them to read. And so often the, the reading is actually uh, can be a problem. Uh, if they're reading books that actually undermine the faith that you are trying to instill in them, then how is that any different than watching a film? So um, screenatfirst.com will give you uh, a great resource on this. And if you just want to help them screen books, you can click on the help screen books tab and it'll bring to you a list of popular books that they are in the middle of. Uh, trying to get reviewed for people. Like here's a book called The Secret of, uh, of the Mansion in the Trixie Belden series. And no one screened it yet. So you can screen it and uh, you can put information out there that's going to help other parents. Screenitfirst.com. It's uh, a great idea. And uh, one of the um, people who listens to this particular podcast, uh, who's, who's a Christian, who is a small business owner, uh, wanted to uh, put this out there uh, for, and they have kids. So, I mean, it's something that's personal to them. And so uh, by using it, you're also supporting a good cause and there's no charge. It's just, it's free. And so I would just encourage you to use that. All right, well, let's get into this. Um, I have a slideshow that I've, uh, that I made. I actually, I made it on the plane when I was coming back from California. Uh, my, for those, uh, I, I haven't really shared, so I, I should probably just share briefly uh, for those who've been praying. I just really I want to say how much I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, it's been difficult. My grandfather died on January 1st. I flew out there, but I kind of missed by a day. I, I missed uh, saying goodbye to him in person. And um, and so it's been over a month now since I talked to him last. I talked to him on Christmas. And uh, so, so we flew out and, and it was just a perfect day. We had clouds the day after, the day before it was raining. And we just had the most perfect, beautiful day for a graveside funeral. Uh, we had actually the military, the army uh, came by, played taps and uh, thanked my grandmother for his service in World War II. And so just a special time. And I just wanna thank everyone for uh, praying for the family. So, um, but when I was on the plane coming back, I started collecting my thoughts on this because I had been uh, reviewing it. And um, and so I put, I tried to break them down into just some, some general things and, uh, I put them into this particular slideshow. So, uh, for those who are patrons, you have access to this, uh, patreon.com forward slash, I believe it's worldview conversation. I'll try to remember to put the link in the info section. If people want to support this podcast, 
but uh, that's where you can uh, find this to download if you want to download it. So here's my summary. This is These are my words. Uh, summary of the book, The Power Worshippers by Catherine Stewart claims to give people an insider's look into the Christian nationalist movement throughout first uh, through firsthand accounts around the country. Expert testimony and extensive research. Uh, Stewart gives her overall impressions, concluding that Christian nationalism is very dangerous and threatens our way of life. She exposes what she believes is dark money, government favor, and sophisticated networking that gives Christian nationalists an edge on the culture war. The book reads as a warning to modern Americans who care about the pluralistic democracy that is the United States. And so what you really find in this book is uh, a person who is very concerned about the influence of Christianity. And there's some personal reasons for that, I believe. Uh, she talks about, there's two, two areas you see this in the book. She talks about an older couple from another town who attempted to set up and lead a Bible study or a Bible club, they called it, at her daughter's public elementary school in Southern California in 2009. And the purpose of the club was to convince children as young as five that they would burn for an eternity if they failed to conform to a strict interpretation of the Christian faith. Now, I'm going to stop right there. This, this is her quote and ask you if you think that that is true. <laughs> so the people promoting the club probably uh, believe that if you died in your sins without repenting and putting your trust in Christ and assuming they believe in an age of accountability before the age of accountability, uh, you suffered everlasting punishment for that in uh, in a place called hell. But um, I, I don't have a problem believing that. That's not a stretch. But to say the purpose of the club was to convince children of this, that they would burn if they failed to conform to a strict interpretation of the Christian faith, that gives you everything you really need to know about this book. Um, of course, a, a club like that would say that their purpose is to preach the message of Jesus, the love of Jesus, to uh, convince children and to help children uh, overcome struggles in their lives and um, not just their lives, but the uh, judgment to come by trusting in Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be if, if you don't if you don't dare conform to a strict interpretation of the Christian faith, then you will burn in hell. That's uh, that that is a cartoon. And most of the book, unfortunately, is a cartoon. It's it, it struck me as someone who's very paranoid and uh, just I don't know, take, takes things about three steps farther than they actually are in her mind and is she's afraid. She's afraid. So um, I haven't even gotten deep into this review and you can already just tell this is the kind of language that you're going to find in this book. And this is that this is the interesting thing to me that Russell Moore and David French and all those guys, you know, they decided that this is like the message they want to be part of. They want to be part of a documentary based on this book. That's pretty crazy because they should be seeing the holes in this and be concerned, but yet they're joining in. So anyway, uh, they, meaning the club, insisted on holding the club in the public school because they knew the kids would think the message was coming from the school. Now, that's an assumption on her part, of course. Um, she doesn't have a quote for this, but it's, you know, that's why they were holding it at the school, because they wanted to confuse the kids. They referred to our public school as their mission field, and she's put that in quotes, and our children as, quote, the harvest. And she's trying to make them sound as creepy as she possibly can. And uh, for those who know Christian insider lingo, you, you can roll your eyes at this. But if you don't know that, if you're new to Christianity, if you don't haven't been exposed to much of it and you're reading this book, you, you'll probably believe it. That's the dangerous thing about this. Um, I thought their plan was outrageously inappropriate in our religiously diverse public school. And she then says she discovered that uh, there, there were many other of these good news clubs across the country in public schools. And she realized that these initiatives were the fruit of a nationally coordinated effort 
not merely to convert other people's children in the classroom, but to undermine public education altogether. So then I told you, she goes three steps farther. They're just trying to undermine public education. That's what they're trying to do here. That's the real secret agenda. Now, that that's going to strike for, for a, a, a normal suburban mom. This is going to be scary because they rely on the public school. They That's an institution that uh, they're involved with and their kids are involved with. And they're trying to undermine it. Um, it was a piece, she says, with their plan to destroy the confidence in our system of education and to make a way for the system of religious education more to their liking. Now, all this is predicated on the fact that in her daughter's public elementary school, there was a Bible study. That's basically what this amounts to. There was a Bible study set up as in like an after school or, a uh, you know, op optional thing, really, not even something that was mandated, but an optional thing at this uh, this good news club. And um, and and that has spurred her into this existence of this club, <laughs> thinking that there's this nefarious attempt to undermine the public education system uh, and uh, to try to convince kids to scare kids as young as, uh, what you say, five years old or something that they're going uh, to hell if unless they adopt a very narrow, strict interpretation of Christianity. So that's number one. Number two, she says this in the book. She says, in the last days of December 2003, I was 13 weeks pregnant and filled with joy at the prospect of having a second child. Then one afternoon, I began to bleed heavily. The ambulance took me to St. Vincent's Hospital, a Catholic fac uh, facility. And I know now that what uh, I needed was a DNC, an abortion procedure to remove tissue from the uterus, which to kill a baby, okay, to, to remove a baby, a tissue, she's saying. But, and I needed it immediately to, uh, to, to stop the bleeding. I later learned that I lost nearly 40% of my blood. Only then did the hospital provide me with the abortion that saved my life. I found no explanation for the delay in treatment. In retrospect, given what I know now about the ethical and religious directives, my best guess is that the hospital was willing to gamble with my life for the sake of preserving a child that was at that point nothing more than a fiction of their imagination. So what you have here is a bunch of assumptions. She doesn't know. <laughs> She's just assuming that the reason she did not get treatment quickly is because the hospital uh, did not want to abort this child in order to save her life. And it's a Catholic facility. Now, the interesting thing is she actually got the procedure. <laughs> so um, so, so if, if it was a prohibition, if the Catholics you know, really just didn't want to give an abortion, they ended up doing it anyway. And, uh, and she lived. And, um, and, and I don't know, I don't know enough about this situation to know what was going on. You know, was this, was this ectopic? What was going on here that, you know, caused this? Was the, was the child already uh, dead? Was, what was this? I don't know. But what I do know is there's a whole bunch of assumptions here and there's an ax to grind. She is finding the culprit and the culprit isn't that people were busy that day. The culprit isn't that things were backed up and, uh, that uh, there they was incompetent uh, people at the hospital. The culprit has to be, it's those Christians. And so th these are the kind, th th these are the little glimpses you get into her personally. She's got a personal bitterness against Christianity. She just blames it for her almost death. Uh, and she also blames it for an attempt to indoctrinate, as she calls it, her child. So it's with this in mind that we <laughs> go, go off on our journey of exposing the Christian nationalist movement, supposedly. So the birth of Christian nationalism, she talks about this on page 63, that the religious right in 1979, she says, had a problem. And uh, they needed to build a new movement around the issue of defense. They, they couldn't build a new movement around the issue of tax advantages of racist schools. So they, they, they couldn't use the segregation movement to their advantage. So instead, they basically chose uh, that they were going uh, to use abortion. 
And, um, and, and so this was a political strategy. That's what she says in the book that this was, so, so there's a very cynical kind of reading that these Christians don't really believe this stuff as much as they do see it as an opportunity that uh, you can really manipulate people's emotions by telling them abortion's wrong and using that to politically gain power. And what they really, though, wanted, and if, if, that, if things were different, they would just use racism. You know, they would just say, uh, we need to uh, have all white schools or something, or we, we should, uh, th that's really the motive. And, you know, I've read this so many times. This is such a very common, uh, common misconception about uh, the religious right. And, um, and, and there's some reasons for it. I think one of them is that uh, you have people like uh, Jerry Falwell uh, not really taking a strong stand on abortion till like seven years after the Roe v. Wade decision, something like that. Uh, you have um, even people in the Southern Baptist Convention there. I forget what they called it, but it was their equivalent of the ERLC, their ethics arm, basically saying, well, you know, there's uh, th there are conditions in which maybe an abortion is acceptable. I mean, and. You know, one of the things I tell people about this is that it was it was a new thing when it happened. Uh, it, it was something that um, a lot of working class people are like this on a lot of things, to be quite honest with you. They're going about their lives. They're living their lives. And then their rulers make decisions on things. You know, for example, um, think about the same sex marriage debates. Right. This was happening before it was uh, legalized. But there was a lot of people who just said, whatever. Just can't can't we just let people who want to get married get married? It's not going to affect my life. Now you fast forward. We're talking about transgender sports and people are now realizing, oh, no, <laughs> what have we done? You know, we took a, a wrong turn somewhere. And um, sometimes there's a delayed effect. You know, we should have been talking about transgender sports 10 years ago, really. But there's a delayed effect. Um, and it's not until it becomes a problem in your life that it affects you personally that you start caring. And, and that's really what one of the things at least i think that happened with the abortion issue it was something that uh was somewhat rare um it, or at least it wasn't talked about openly in public that much there is a shame uh, attached to it and um when it starts becoming mainstreamed and when people start realizing what's happening uh that's when you know when you have like a a, a family member that has this done that's when you start realizing man i need to get involved and um and so, you know, that that is a well, I don't know why that is not a legitimate interpretation of why there was a, a delay, because you don't see the, the evangelicals really uh, mobilizing on other issues. Um, the, the, the leftists try to make it sound like they were mobilizing behind Bob Jones and that this was a, a racist motivation. They wanted to keep the government from regulating uh, things like it wasn't just this, but things like um, maintaining certain racial makeups in schools. And the reality was there were evangelicals concerned about that, but they were concerned um, more because they just didn't want the national government telling private schools what to do, uh, because if they can tell them what to do in this one area, why not other areas, right? It just gives them unlimited uh, access and uh, control. So um, they'll take that and they'll whittle the whole issue down to it is really just about one thing. They just hate minorities. And but it wasn't even that issue did not resonate with people. Uh, like the issue of abortion did in the 1980s. And so um, so she gives a very typical understanding of this and uh, you know tries to make it out like, well, like even she says school prayer worked for some. They could use that as a rallying point, but it alienated Catholics and they needed the Catholics. So they had to use abortion. And it's like, man, if you were around, even in the 90s, I was around for that, you know, the religious right of the 90s. 
they were uh, talking about school prayer every at every turn. School prayer was blamed, probably overblamed. Honestly, they say we took God out of the schools when we took prayer out, and then we got all these problems. And and so she writes. She's trying to say she's an insider, but to be quite honest with you, I don't know how inside she actually is. I think a lot of this is she she went to a few events that were more recent, and then she read a whole bunch of leftists on this topic. That's that would be my impression. Uh, after reading a book like this, she she does not come across as someone who's actually an insider at all. Um, now, the roots of Christian nationalism, uh, the identification of religious authority, she says, with the perpetuation of the institution of slavery reflected something far more important than mere adab uh, adaptation to the largest concentration of economic power in the nation, although it was that too. At a deeper level, it was part of a counter-revolutionary response to the perceived liberal and irreligious excesses associated with the American Revolution. So then, she tries to prove to go to say the American Revolution was this low point for religious fundamentalists. She uh, quotes this letter from uh, to Doctor Benjamin Waterhouse from Thomas Jefferson, and he and it's a prediction that all Americans would shortly convert to Unitarianism. And Thomas Paine went even further, suggesting they would abandon all traditional religions in favor of pure deism. So she 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 cherry picks these historical things and says goes to um, like Thomas Paine is a radical example, of course. Thomas Paine you know, is uh, not, not he, he writes common sense, but he goes off the rails after that and joins in with supporting the French Revolution. And um, there is some thought, by the way, that before his death, though, he saw some of the errors of his ways. But I, you know, I, I don't know. Like, don't quote me on that. But Thomas Paine was a radical. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson, um, I didn't look into this quote specifically, but I, it wouldn't shock me if Thomas Jefferson saw a trend toward Unitarianism uh, in some, in certain fact, in certain circles, but certainly Thomas Jefferson himself was involved in financing uh, very conservative uh, religious efforts. He, he actually financed a Calvinistic church in Charlottesville, and he was friends, really close friends, with the pastor who pastored it, who lived in um, Forest, Virginia, where he had his second house, and they used to spend a lot of the time together. It was Charles Clay. And uh, Thomas Jefferson himself uh, would not have been in favor of casting all religion aside or anything like that. But she tries to take these examples to, to, to then make a statement, to, to make a generalization that the American Revolution was this godless, almost atheistic time period. And that's just simply not the case. Uh, it, for anyone who studied this issue in, in any kind of depth, um, you, you'll know that uh, the clergy played a great role in getting the Americans on board. It was called the Black Robe Regiment uh, by people in, in other parts of the world, like, in, well, in Great Britain. Uh, some of them called it the Presbyterian Revolt because of it. But you had um, the fact that a lot of historians will point to this, the fact that the, the First Great Awakening gave the colonies a sense of togetherness that they would not have had otherwise. And, and some even uh, will say that they don't think it would have been possible without the Great Awakening. Um, you have the fact that the Bible by far is more quoted in the Constitutional Convention than any other document. Uh, that includes Locke, that includes Blackstone, it's, it's the Bible. And the, the illustrations they use, the symbolism they use, it's all biblical. It's, it's, I mean, there's some Greek and Roman stuff too that makes its way in, but there's so much of it, I should say, not all, but there's so much of it that's biblical. And so to say that this was like this low point for religious fundamentalism is absurd. You had nine of the 13 uh, colonies at the time had official state religions. And the ones that didn't were, if you read their constitutions or royal charters, they were pretty uh, pro, they were not just religious, but pro-Christian. Um, 
so, you know, much more could be said, but uh, it's I, I wrote an article actually not long ago for American Reformer uh, on the Satan statue issue. And I go into a lot of this and uh, it just completely refutes her position on this. So um, so it's <laughs> it's slavery. Apparently, she tries to link uh, that Christian nationalism starts with, with defending and the perpetuation of slavery or wanting the perpetuation of slavery uh, somewhat as a way, I guess, to combat the irreligious founding. Uh, very interesting there. Uh, and and she says, among apologists for Christian nationalism today, the, the favored myth is that the movement represents the extension of abolitionism. But um, she says that uh, the truth is today's Christian nationalism did not emerge out of the religious movement that opposed such rigid hierarchies. It came from one that promoted them with the Bible in one hand and the whip in the other. So, you know, of course, this, this is just uh, bombastic, outrageous language. That uh, even if let, let's say that um, the Christian nationalists supported slavery, yeah, are they gonna? They're they're supporting it with a Bible in one hand and a whip in the other. That's where you get the cartoon, right? And so that's why I put that image there. I wanted the you know the, this is the cartoonish kind of uh, retelling of Christian nationalism. It's just about uh, suppressing uh, people of other races and women and uh, homosexuals, and it's just for white Christian men. That's what it is. It's it's a critical theory way of understanding this. It's it's Christianity is just this tool for white men to, uh, or at least Christian nationalism to exert influence and power over everyone else. Now, I think this story is undercut, okay? It's undercut by today's emphasis on racial unity, which she admits in two places in the book. She talks about being at a values voter summit in 2018, and Bishop Larry Jackson spoke in somewhat plaintive tones about the power of affecting change through racial unity. She also uh, talks at another point um, about, uh, an individual in California who she's, you know, scared about. She, he's, a, he's very influential, but he's Hispanic. And, um, it, she says it helps him, him speaking helps, uh, the Christian nationalist movement in California inoculate itself against the charges of racism in the past and in the present, someone named Doman. So, you know, here, here you go. Like they're, it, it's so racist, but yet they're platforming people who are black, who are Hispanic or Latino, who are, um, who are bringing a message of racial unity. And uh, of course that's just discounted as uh, that's not the roots. That's not really, that's not the story. Um, so uh, you have to be cynical and think that they're trying to cover something. Right. And that's where she ends up. Um, it's also the, the story is undercut by the religious fervor present at the founding, which I mentioned already a bunch of those things. Uh, and then the concern over the evils associated with slavery. So she, she likes to lean on, Robert Louis Dabney and uh, and Rush Dooney quite a bit and and tries to put them as the kind of founding fathers of Christian nationalism. And uh, Dabney has a book called The Defense of Virginia in the South. And um, in that book, uh, you know, he sees uh, defends the Confederate or Southern position. He's actually Stonewall Jackson's uh, chief of staff. And he wrote a biography of Stonewall Jackson, but he was a brilliant theological uh, professor and he had a brilliant theological mind. And Dabney, uh, though, if you read him closely, he calls slave, the slave trade an iniquitous traffic. He supported biblical regulations on slavery. Um, he was not one of these people that defended slavery in the abstract as a, a, a moral good, you know, throughout time and place. He was more, um, if you really want to understand what he's trying to say, it's really more of an anti uh, fanatical abolitionism that would irresponsibly try to end slavery without compensation or integration, just end it. And, and of course, the problems associated with that economically and socially have been with us ever since. But and, and Dabney was against that. Um, you, you find in Dabney, too, I mean, he, he emphasizes how Virginia was foremost in trying to suppress the slave trade and 
if it wasn't for um, some of the abolitionist uh, literature in the postal crisis, you know, they may have actually banned the practice. And he talks about these kinds of things. She, I don't think she even is aware, to be quite honest. I think she probably read something, Dabney's evil and loves slavery, and I'm just going to, you know, make it about Dabney. And of course, Doug Wilson likes Dabney, so Doug Wilson's prominent in Christian nationalism, so there you go. Um, Rush Dooney's another one. Now, here's the thing. Rush Dooney acknowledged where chattel slavery fell short, and he opposed civil slavery. And this is one of the things that I, I don't think she, uh, she either understands or wanted to communicate, but you find in Dabney this, this sense of this as well. Both of these guys talk about um, unjust hierarchies. They talk about uh, concern over state-imposed slavery, civil slavery, not chattel slavery, but civil slavery that was coming, and that uh, you know this would not be known as slavery or labeled as slavery, but it would effectively um, make everyone into a number. And that's where we are today. Uh, they were actually Rush Dooney and, and Ben Dabney were both, uh, despite the fact that we, we would probably disagree with them on some things. Um, they, they actually had their finger on the pulse of some things accurately, and they predicted some things. So um, I would not make them the center pin, though, of everything Christian nationalist. Um, in fact, I would even, if, if you really want to do a broad, here's what uh, Christian political involvement is, you're going to have to talk about people like William Wilberforce. You're going to have to, um, and if you just want to limit it to America, I suppose, I mean, you're going to have to talk about people like Billy Graham. You're going to have to talk about some pretty respected mainstream type Christians, even in today's mindset. Some of these guys were mainstream, you know, years ago, but now they're not so much because uh, they've been vilified. But even guys who haven't been vilified as much are going to have to be part of the story. And she she wants to try to, her whole goal is to try to find the, the people that can be used as, uh, well, the figures that can be vilified the most to then portray the whole movement as, as terrible. Um. And of course, to her, Christian nationalism is really just Christian political involvement, trying to uh, exert Christian influence and power in politics. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little more. But um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention here is that, you know, would she accept, I wonder, uh, would Catherine uh, accept the idea that progressivism and the liberalism that she so defends having its roots in phrenology, meaning the measuring of skulls to find out the social or the... Uh, mental capacity in different races um, or Darwinism or eugenics or abortion as, as like the, you know, these are the, the, the founding things. These are the important things to put at the center of the story of progressivism. I don't think she would. Um, and yet, you know, some of these things like phrenology, these, these are being opposed by, uh, you know, Southern pastors that she hates. Um, and so it, it's, it is an incomplete story. It is a cartoon story. And the whole thing's a cartoon. The whole thing's really just a cartoon. All right, so here are the stories uh, that she brings up, or the the problems that she brings up uh, with Christian nationalism, and um, I want to talk about these. So Catherine Stewart starts off with it undermines the liberal order, and I have a bunch of quotes on this. I don't know if I'm going to talk about all of them, but um, she says perhaps the most salient impediment to our understanding of the movement is the notion that Christian nationalism is a conservative ideology. The correct word is radical. A genuinely conservative movement would seek to preserve institutions of value that have been crafted over centuries of American history. It would prize the integrity of electoral politics, the legitimacy of the judiciary, the importance of public education, and the values of tolerance and mutual respect that have sustained our pluralistic society, even as others have been torn apart by sectarian conflict. Christian nationalism pretends to work towards the revival of traditional values, that its values contradict the long-established principles and norms of our democracy. It is no interest in securing the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. It will happily steal seats and pack the court as long as it gets the rulings it wants. 
It cheers along voter suppression and gerrymandering schemes that allow Republicans to maintain disproportionate legislative control. It collaborates with international leaders who seek to undermine the United States, traditional alliances in the post-war world order. <laughs> Let me read that again. The post-war world order built upon the past seven decades, and it claims to defend the family, but treats so many American families with contempt. Of course, you know, non-traditional things that, you know, units that are called families by the left, like, you know, same-sex marriages and so forth. So uh, th this is her, her beef. Now, you might sense a lot of projection in that. <laughs> like, I'm thinking... These are like a lot of the complaints that conservatives have about the left. Um, but, you know, she seems to think these are the, the dirty tricks that Christian nationalists want to do. They, they are seeking to undermine the Supreme Court by packing the court and these kinds of things. Um, so it's OK when when we do it, but not OK when you do it. So um, it's it undermines democracy, undermines Republican our electoral politics, you know, it calls into question the legitimacy of elections and these kinds of things. And, and that's the, the danger. And that's why it's not conservative. So because it undermines the liberal order. It doesn't conserve these great things that we have. Um, and so, you know, that, that's that's problem one. And I would encourage anyone concerned, you know, who wants to know more about this, go watch the series I did on liberalism with uh, Time and Klein and Ben Crenshaw. And you'll understand more what she's talking about here. Um, the, the truth is that Christians who are politically involved, who see that we're not a moral country anymore, who see the flaws um, in having a, an ungodly people try to work within these systems that presume a level of honesty that, you know, they are going to perhaps look for, uh, things that have been unconventional for quite some time. They're going to look at secession and nullification and, uh, perhaps even authoritarian, uh, schemes in order to try to preserve a semblance of morality. That, that is the case. Um, it doesn't mean that they've been very successful in that. And that doesn't mean there's many that do that. And the thing for Catherine Stewart is she thinks that this is so broad, right? So she's not even talking about those people. She's talking about just people who want to lobby in DC for their cause. Very mainstream Christian organizations like Focus on the Family. Uh, these are the kinds of people that she's concerned about. And really for them, it's just a straw man. Um, it's, they're not doing that, but that's what she thinks. They're just not committed sufficiently to the liberal order because she's following a religion, though she does not realize it. Re liberalism, the and the liberal order, uh, has a very religious uh, kind of feel to it. You you have to have a you have to pinch the incense to Caesar, and and that means supporting democracy. And I uh, remember when the January sixth thing happened. Remember Nancy Pelosi said they've desecrated our temple of democracy, right? So there's you. Um, you take even religious language and apply it to these supposedly secular things, but uh, nature abhors a vacuum. People are going to be religious. They're going to worship something. And so you end up deifying uh, people, uh, figures from history like Martin Luther King Jr., right? That, that becomes the new Christ figure. And so she's part of a, a religion. She just doesn't realize it. And she wants her religion to be taxpayer funded. She wants the secular humanist agenda, if you want to call it that, or just the liberal order. Uh, the great, uh, the great American empire. Uh, she wants that stuff funded uh, by our tax dollars, but not Christianity. Um, so it, she also says it seems to sadly uh, fit that so many of the self-appointed patriots of America's Christian nationalist movement should have found themselves working with foreign powers. So she's talking about Putin there. Um, it's a movement that never accepted the promise of America, right? So apparently Christians never accepted that. They never believed that a republic could be founded on a universal ideal of equality, not on a particular creed or that it might seek out reasoned answers to humanity's challenges rather than enforce old dogmas. It never subscribed to the nation's original motto, e pluribus unum, that out of the many we could become one. From the beginning, its aim was to redeem the nation by crushing the plural pluralistic heart of the country. 
Now, here's the thing. E pluribus unum, right? Out of the many one. Yeah, out of the many states that were uh, pretty much all from an Anglo-Protestant background. Right. Out of the many one, um, you know, incorporating now Roman Catholics from Southern Europe. And to, to, to have the broad swath that you have today, uh, would the founders have thought that was sustainable? I don't think so. <laughs> it's not the same thing. It's apples and oranges trying to compare that. But she wants to make that. That's the heart of the country. And these, these Christian nationals are the freaks. They never actually supported our country because that's what our country is about. Never accepted the promise of America. And what is the promise of America? Well, it's this creedal nation. It's this universal principles. Uh, you can be part of it if you just believe in equality. And uh, it's it, you can be an American and live in Saudi Arabia, I guess, right? Because it doesn't matter where you live. It just matters uh, if you believe in something very broad like equality. That if they're, the promise of America, if that's what it is, it, it just under there is no promise of America. It's not unique to America. It just universalizes everything. So, um, so, so anyway, it, it, it's really, it's the opposite of this. Um, America is an Anglo-Protestant country. The founders understood this. Uh, George Washington wrote about it in his farewell address. And this is what keeps America, has kept Americans together for quite some time until very recently, and things are falling apart. And so um, these, some of these mottos and stuff, they fit in with that. They're, they don't contradict that. Um, so the movement does not speak, she says, for a majority is, is a militant minority. So she tries to say that, look, you, you guys are just a minority. Uh, it, it's 26% of the voting age population. Um, it's, you know, it, it's just not, uh, not a big portion of people. And, and to that, I say, well, you know, how many people are homosexual, <laughs> right? Not many. And for years, I mean, they were in this minority and yet they gained power over time and convinced the rest of the country that uh, they should be supported in that kind of thing. And at least enough people to support the legalization of uh, wedding ceremonies that uh, they wanted to participate in. So it's, it's not, this doesn't disqualify them. Why, if, even if they're a minority, why can't they use whatever influence they have to try to convince others of their position? Why, how come it's just Christians that, why is this a cut against them? You know, that should be, um, you know, Hey, uh, they're, maybe that's something to admire. If that's true, right? Uh, now the reality is she she paints so wide a net. I don't know if I buy this. I think it's probably a whole lot more people than she realizes. If it's just you know, if if the standard is people who want a Christian uh, influence in their society, then it's going to be more than that. So, I, but she she's very, in my opinion, sloppy in the book, and she doesn't she she's not defining exactly what she's talking about, other than this vague kind of scary Christians who want to exert their power and authority, and that's what it is. Uh, problem two, it's funded by special interests. Now, this one's kind of laughable to me. Um, she, she, she talks about how there's a crisis of the American political party system that's at the juncture of money and religion. And that it's, um, th that there's this network, uh, the DeVos uh, Prince clan, the Fa Bradley foundation, Howen Amlison Jr., the foundations for the late Richard Scaife, the James, and she goes on, um, the Green family. There's all these organizations and they're funding things like the Museum of the Bible. And it's dark. She even calls it right wing dark money that targets the courts. Now, the reason I find this so laughable is uh, I shared it on the podcast a while ago. It was this chart of uh, giving, you know, how different uh, people in different fields in the United States, who they give to liberals or conservatives. It's overwhelmingly left, overwhelmingly. The money the left has is, oh, it, it is not even close. It's just, and they have all the institutes. They have Hollywood, they have the academy, 
they have uh, the political advantage. They have they have just about everything. Um, education. They, they they just they even are getting our churches now, and yet she wants to make out like there's this nefarious dark right wing conspiracy with all these these uh, like family foundations and so forth to undermine democracy. And so this is, again, why, if it's good for you guys, how, if you guys can uh, have the Ford foundation and, you know, just everything else, you know, like, like it's like, why can't we have, you know, maybe one, two, three, four, five percent. Why, why is that not possible? The, the only thing that would satisfy someone like Catherine Stewart is if Christians had no money, no influence and never exerted authority or control over anything. I mean, th that's what you have to get from this, because as soon as someone gives money towards, yeah, you know, I think I believe in that candidate, then they are somehow now being funded by special interests. It's laughable. Problem three, twisting Christianity. So she says, here are the anxieties over shifting gender roles and the resentments over fading economic privilege are transmuted into personal salvation and political gold. Setting aside the big money, the key to hard right wing Republican power in this state is an army of volunteer activists, people with the time and energy to camp. So, so anyway, she, she says that these right-wing uh, activists who go out and try to get people to vote um, are, they, they have anxiety over shifting gender roles and resentment over economic privilege. That's, uh, but, but what the language they use is about personal salvation. Now th that's another laughable thing to me that, so, so they're trying to get people saved, but really underneath all of it is they just don't want uh, shifting gender roles. They want the men to be in charge. Um, so again, it's just, you don't even have to refute these because it's just, uh, it's just something made up in her head. She's just saying this stuff, hoping it'll stick. She thinks that they're exploited by the Trump administration. Um, Watchman on the wall, a right-wing Christian organization, continues to gain favor with the Trump-Pence administration and allied politicians. She wrote this during their administration. Um, one political party endorses ultra-conservative varieties of religion and is exploiting them to lock in power. This is how the Christian nationalist movement works. So... If you think Christianity is okay, uh, you should be very wary of the Christian nationalist movement, though, because it's it's something different. It's something left-wing Christianity is okay, but right-wing Christianity, very dangerous and scary because they're using it to uh, put people like Donald Trump in office. And then problem five, uh, power over process. So she makes the claim that David French and Russell Moore make all the time that Christians are just, these Christian nationalists are about power. And uh, she says, Trump is the man who, by all accounts, has the least claim of any public figure in recent memory to those virtues that are identified as Christian, but, um, but the Christians have embraced him. And while many Americans still believe that the Christian right is primarily concerned with values, leaders of movement know it's really about power. And so she uses Trump to prove this, that, look, he's kind of a low life. Christians endorsed him, so they really don't care about values. And what I'd say to that is people need to, I think, think of the culture war in different terms. It's a culture siege. And we are being um, ever more uh, pushed back into a narrower and narrower circle of influence. And you have people like Donald Trump, who we disagree with when it comes to his personal morality and those kinds of things, but he's willing to push back on the same uh, hordes that are trying to destroy us and destroy our institutions. And so he ends up becoming a co-belligerent. He ends up becoming an ally. Um, he, th that's how you have to view it. And the situation changes in the 90s. You know, we did not have the, the, the hordes had not gotten to the inner circle of, you know, uh, they, they had not. Um, it, it was not, let's say, a something that you could talk about openly and publicly without risking some kind of political backlash 
uh, you know, adultery affairs, those kinds of things. And in 2010 and 2011, and now in 2016, especially, and, and now it's 2024, um, that we've already breached that. Like the barbarians breached it. It was the Democrats really who, who more than the Republicans, if you want to talk political, who breached that more. And um, so it doesn't mean that those values don't matter anymore. It just means that you have to realize the situation we're in. Um, we are we have fallen to a farther level and to try to continue a defensive action. Um, we are now fighting over things like, you know, can women be men in without uh, in, in the schools by getting surgeries without telling their parents? You know, it, it's there's a different set of issues that are now coming to the fore. So. Um, so it's not like Christians are endorsing Trump's bad behavior. They just recognize that the worst behavior the, that are being foisted upon them, Trump will oppose. So um, so Catherine Stewart doesn't make, she doesn't see any of this, it seems. Um, she says, at this point, it would be, uh, is apparent to any listener that the agenda of Project Blitz, which was one of the right-wing initiatives, has nothing to do with religious freedom in the proper sense of the term. Um it's a Christian army that's trying to fight on behalf of conservative Christians who wish to discriminate against those who do not share their beliefs. And when they say religious freedom, the Christian nationalist participants simply meant privilege for those with the right religion. This is a key thing right here. She is very offended that Christian nationalists, as she calls them, will not fight for universal human values, that they fight for themselves and what they believe in as their faith defines it. And so the only right thing in her mind to fight for is something that is universal, that every everyone can kind of agree on, that applies to everyone. And you don't want to privilege one group over any other group. Of course, she wants to just privilege secular humanist liberals. But um, but but she doesn't she gives herself a neutrality that that's the neutral position. That is the universalism. Everyone should just uh, you know agree to. But the thing she doesn't see about Christian nationalists, I think, is that they actually see what they believe as the universal truth. Now, maybe not uh, their particular, you know, Anglo-Saxon or you know, German Lutheran or whatever variety of Christianity, but they do see Christianity as a universal religion that all people will be judged by. And, and so it's a good thing when rulers apply Christian uh, values and principles because it blesses everyone. And I don't think she understands that. She still she can't get out of the mindset that Christianity is just this one narrow religion, and it's like a it's like you know liking the color blue. There's people who like the color blue. There's people that are right-handed. There's people that are handicapped. There's people who like to go fly fishing. There's there's these particular things that uh, should not be foisted on everyone else. That you know not everything has to be about fly fishing. Not everything has to be handicap accessible because only some people have those issues, right? Or only some people enjoy that sport. And Christianity is the same thing, but it's not. That's the problem in, in part. Christians actually believe what their Bible says about mankind, broadly speaking, is true. So you have a competition between two uh, universal claims here, universal um, sets of claims. Hidden agenda. So the other thing is she thinks that uh, there's, I mean, she's I already kind of teased at this, but um, that the, the whole, she has a whole section on school choice and charter schools. And she thinks that it's a, just a way to funnel taxpayer money into schools that discriminate, teach pseudoscience, fake history, and promote contempt for those that are di different. So th it's, it's a hidden agenda that they're not, they, they want to improve the quality of schools, but that's not what they're actually doing. They can't possibly want to improve the quality of schools. They're just trying to get taxpayer money to fund uh, what they believe. Now I, I would point out taxpayer money has funded Darwinian evolution for how many years? 
it, it has funded things that Christians totally disagree with, even though the majority of the country claims to be Christian. And even though last I checked, it was roughly half the country uh, rejects Darwinism. Yet we've funded that in the schools. That's just one thing, right? Now we're fund funding uh, all kinds of transgender nonsense and the rest. And somehow that's not, that's perfectly fine. That's acceptable. That's not undermining. That's not a hidden agenda. That's just education in her mind. Um, but Christians, uh, they don't, you know, any kind of public monies that may, may be coming back to them from what they've already given, because, the, you know, there's no free money there. Well, it's a lot of working class Christians supporting the government that exists. Whatever money they can get back in maybe a charter school or something. Uh, to promote values that they believe in, uh, that's not acceptable. That's a hidden agenda. And, and it assumes the money doesn't even belong to them. The, the taxpayer money uh, belongs to uh, this. Really, I guess it's it's a group of narrow-minded elites who want to foist their crazy agenda on the rest of the country. And that's, that's supposed to be universally good. So here are my conclusions. Um, this letter, letter <laughs> this book was written for those on the left, giving them an insider's perspective supposedly, but it uses a lot of elitist language. You even find that with the food. She'll talk about like, I was at this Christian nationals event and they had uh, barbecue baked beans. And she, she talks about the menu items and it's always like, you know, redneck kind of food. And you know, you just get this sense. It's dripping with elitist kind of a smugness about it. Um, but there's also a lot of biased sources. She's constantly quoting all the, like left-wing think tanks and a freedom from religion foundation. And the, it's, it's totally biased in that way. Um, so it considers Christians advocating for themselves instead of universal values evil and engages in projection, accusing Christian nationalists of doing what she's doing. They can't pursue power. They can't pursue influence. They're not allowed to uh, use the money that they pay in taxes to promote things that are good for their communities and their minds. Uh, they, so they have to be the slaves of uh, the federal or the national government and a extreme left wing agenda that comes out of them. That, that's really the only option here. Um, she engages in the similar tactics though, that she criticizes. Here's one example. She quotes mines. She talks about David Barton quote mining and which David Bartman, I've said before, he does actually quote mine sometimes, but, um, but she does the same thing only worse. Uh, she talks about, um, America was a pluralistic land from the beginning. She quotes Thomas Jefferson's wall of separation, uh, the Virginia statute of religious freedom. Um, she talks about the treaty of Tripoli and, and of course that settles it. And the thing is, if, if you look into all these things, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Um, in fact, and I can't do a whole long history on this, but the the whole purpose of the separation of church and state was to prevent the state, the and this is the national state, the national government, from imposing itself onto uh, local churches. And it was to protect churches from the state. That's essentially what it was. So not the other way around. Uh, the Virginia Statue for Religious Freedom was um, meant to promote a um, really a broad kind of uh, Christian society in Virginia. So remember, Virginia is coming out of being an officially Anglican and then Episcopalian, uh, uh, well, Anglican colony. And, um, and, and, and after the War for Independence, uh, they're no longer um, Anglican. And there's other people moving in and there's other Protestant groups uh, in Virginia. And so they have this, it, really, that was the, the context. And they have this situation. And, and, and that same year, Thomas Jefferson and, um, and James Madison, who author this particular uh, and support this particular uh, Bill of Religious Freedom, they also 
have a law against Sabbath breaking the same year. So you cannot say that that's what they were really just trying to have a secular society. That's not the case. Um, and then the Treaty of Tripoli is, it's interesting people go to this because it's kind of like a vague, obscure thing to try to build a whole case on. But you have the Barbary pirate issue and we're trying to get, um, basically, we want to get people that the Barbary pirates have seized from the United States uh, to return back to the United States. And in the Treaty of Tripoli, one of the things that we explain to the Barbary pirates is that we are not uh, the foundation of the United States, of, of the, and it's really just the national government. Uh, we're, we're not Christian in the sense of, and we're talking to Muslims here, in, in the sense of the crusader states, that people who fought with the Muslims. We are, we're different. Um, now, maybe that's not true, but that's what the Treaty of Tripoli says. We, uh, we are not opposed to Islam in the ways that some of these European countries have been opposed to Islam in the past. There's a continued war that's been going on since the Crusades and before that, really, because Muslims started it. And we're not part of that. That's what the Treaty of Tripoli is about. It's not saying anything about what state governments can do, whether they can establish a religion on the state or local level. Um, it's it, it, to, to build something off of that is just, it's desperate. That's what I'd say. The conflict, um, she said, took a turn in Philadelphia uh, when Protestants and Catholics hit the streets. So, so Catholics and Protestants were disagreeing with each other. Um, and she quotes Ulysses S. Grant that he said, leave the matter of the religion to the family circle, the church and the private school. Uh, supported by private contributions, keep the church and state forever separate. So she thinks that's authoritative. Ulysses S. Grant said this. Therefore, it's American and we must abide by it. Well, that's the same thing David D D David uh, Barton does. Uh, only, she, you know, hers are more desperate. I mean, the fact that she can't find, you know, mainstream figures to quote, she's got to like look for Ulysses S. Grant to try to find something uh, kind of proves that. So um, that's just my assessment of, of this particular book, The Power Worshippers. And... Um, I guess I just want people to know the main point that I, I did this was that this book is intending to expose supposedly Christian nationalism today. And you have a bunch of Christians supposedly supporting this and being interviewed for it. And yet the book it's based on is really just an anti-Christian diatribe. That's all it is. Uh, and they, they are, th this confirms that those guys, uh, David French, Russell Moore, Jamar Tisby, uh, Christian Dumas, that they're being used as tools. That's all it is. They, no one should really listen to anything they say anymore. If they're going to partner with a narrative like this and with producers who are blatantly against Christianity. So that's kind of, that, that's just my opinion. That's a podcast for today. If you want to become a Patreon, a patron, you go to patreon.com forward slash worldview conversation. And I will have uh, this posted there. Um, more coming. God bless. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.